Hey there, this is Mason Gordon, and you're listening to Soilcraft's Regenerative Agronomy Podcast, where we aspire to bring transparency to farmers through education. And now we'll head over to the studio where you'll meet the team and we'll introduce this episode's topic. Welcome back to the studio, guys. I have here today with me, Denver Black, Trent Graybill, Craig Harding. Craig, Craig's our special guest for today. If you don't know who Craig is, go back and listen to our last podcast where we introduced him and got to know him a little bit more. So today we're going to talk about silica. That's our topic here. What is it's responsible for in plants, what the different forms are, and what do we see in the fields from silica and how it relates to human health. So guys, let's have a conversation about this and start off Denver. What is silica? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, we often hear silica or silicon, silicone, right, thrown about. And so basically, just briefly, the difference between silica and silicon is that silicon is the element, whereas silica is how we describe it in a compound. And so for the most part, you're going to hear us talk about silica. And that's predominantly because we find it in many useful forms, whether it's orthosilicic acid, silicon dioxide, monosilicic acid, potassium silicate, calcium silicate, right? These are all compounds. And so we're generally going to be describing it in this capacity. So, but but still, what is it? So it's considered by most to be a micronutrient, but we know that soils are predominantly comprised of aluminosilicates. Um, there's a lot of incredible science being done today that's showing and suggesting that perhaps it's more of a macro. We'll get into that a little bit, talk about removal rates in some crops. But at any rate, it's, I mean, it's a bioessential mineral. It's really important in, in most crops, more important in some than others. And a lot of study being done in you know, rice, barley, oats, cotton, wheat, sunflower, sugarcane, potatoes, forage crops. And a really cool aspect to it is that the soil microbes convert silica to sil- silicic acid, right? The plant available form. So as you'll hear here, a huge theme is always just the importance of the soil microbes, the soil microbiome, and that's not without exception here. So that's a bit about what silica is. Now, what is it responsible for in plants? So basically, it has a strong role in metabolism, reducing abiotic stress, a decreasing susceptibility to biotic threats, whether that's fungi, bacteria, virus, or insects, photosynthetic efficiency, stem strength, and lodging, increases availability of other elements, phosphorus is an example, mediating toxicity of excess elements. I mean, what else do you want from one element, right? I mean, the deeper we dig, the more roles it seems to play, which is just incredible. So a little bit about its role in metabolism. I like to say lignin for less, right? Uh, it's incredible on its efficiency. So lignin, what's lignin guys, right? We talk about lignin. It's it's the structure of most plants. It's the woody material, whether that's in trees or stems of wheat stalks, for instance. Generally speaking, you know, it's a very good food for fungi. Fungi break it down almost exclusively. Bacteria really have a tough time. They need some help. They can do it, but don't do it well. But uh, livestock, again, so in the rumen, we can see the lignin broken down. But generally, it, it takes a lot of energy to make it and a lot of energy to break it down. And what we find is that silicon can actually be used as a structural component or is used as a structural component. And 
when plants have a sufficient amount of silica, they're able to utilize more of that as a structural component, and it requires a lot less energy from the plant to do so. So what that means is we're we're able to build this superstructure, and we got to remember a lot of times stems, trunks, etc. You know they serve a purpose, sure, for plants to have xylem and phloem going in, but really it's there to support as a structural support, just like we would see, you know, girders and and beams and buildings to support the fruit that it will eventually carry, whether that be leaves or literal fruit or grains, etc., nuts. And so, I mean, it's incredibly important, but the more energy we put into structure, the less energy we have for fruit or, or what we're actually after. And we're talking a significant amount. So, you know, about two grams of glucose are necessary for the synthesis of one gram of lignin. Now, the ratio of energy required for lignin to that of silica is 20 to 1. So, absolutely massive savings in energy. So again, in plant metabolism, structural part of the plant, which always comes before we're producing what we get paid for, we can seriously reduce the amount of energy supplied there. So that's just massive. It also plays a pretty important role in protein synthesis. And uh, this is a a little teaser for a hopeful (laughs) podcast in the future because our special guest, Craig, here is just nuts about protein synthesis. Uh, We'll fault Trent for that because Trent shared with him a healthy crops by Francis Chaposo and uh, Craig read it. And now he's, would you say, obsessed? Definitely, definitely. About protein (laughs) synthesis. So did you have something you wanted to mention that you were seeing silica in response just generally to protein synthesis? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as you look at some of the studies in fungal infected conditions that you get this downsizing of the capacity of photosynthesis protein, all of those kind of things. And you get this stress factor and it's, you put silica into the play, you immediately reverse that scenario. You stress goes away and you have photosynthesis and protein synthesis come back into a heightened state. And I think there's so many aspects we can go into this. And so basically every aspect we're going to discuss right now is going to be around this statement right here, which is plants that are supplied with silica produce phenolics, lignin, H2O2 or peroxide, and phytoalexins, right? And it protects from things like lodging, drought, radiation, high temps, low temps, freezing, UV radiation, and salinity, as well as biotic stressors mentioned. So that's really what we're highlighting here, because again, what crops don't face these, right? abiotic and and biotic stressors. So to that reducing abiotic stress, silica, again, being responsible if supplied for producing phenolics, lignin, we described that, but phytoalexins. So what are phytoalexins, right? Phytoalexins are low molecular weight antimicrobial compounds that are produced by plants as a response to biotic and abiotic stress. So just as you were talking about fungal infections, right? Which is a huge issue. And so what, what this is, a phytoalexin is this antimicrobial compound produced by the plant in response to an infection of some kind or an invasion, whether that's a nick, whether that's an insect feeding on it. It's the plant's ability to mount an immune response. And there's uh, also, I think, the physical component as well to silica and those infections more than just the immune response and those compounds that the plant produces. I can't find any of the videos, but there's some videos somewhere that are pretty old under a microscope looking at leaf tissue. And when there's an infection site, say from like a fungal infection, a powdery mildew spore lands on a leaf or something happens to the leaf and it gets you know bitten by an insect or cut, they show where the plant response actually brings calcium and silica to that infection site and walls off the cells behind 
the infection site so that it can't, it basically can't continue into the plant structure. So there's actually a physical effect. Like quarantining. Yep, literally. And so, you know, beyond the immune effect that which you were talking about and we'll continue to talk about, there's actually like a glass-like effect, which is silica is glass, silicon dioxide. And it actually, if you look it up, crystalline silicon has the same structure as a diamond. So Whoa. it's extremely structural and it's incredible. That's <laughs> one of the reasons plants high in silica have a much, much more immune response, or I should say they can prevent things from infecting them and chewing on them because they're hard, literally hard. I've seen that in the field. You know, we see that we typically often attribute it to a trait, a varietal trait. I mean, so for instance, in in grains, you know, we have varieties that tend to be more resistant to rust, for instance, right? Leaf rust or stripe rust. And I've seen it in, in wheat, but I've also seen it in other crops where you'll see rust start to form. So you have an infection, but then like you're describing that walling off, you'll see the the plant leaf tissue gets thicker right around it. And then it basically almost becomes like a petrified, right? Mm -hmm. Which is unbelievable. Hey, you're giving a good example to Craig and I in the truck yesterday about just that silica, silicon as a barrier. For you, no, well, talking about your pickup, actually. Oh, yeah, ceramic coatings. Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of a new, it's like, instead of waxing your car, you give it a ceramic coating and instead of it lasting a month, you know, after you wax your car before it, you know, loses that luster and that effect where water and dust just beads off or, you know, wipes off and then it wears off, ceramic coatings last years, depending on the type of coating you get, the application that's made, it's actually like a permanent bond. And that is made from silica. It's mostly silica and with uh, along with other compounds that make your vehicle's coating completely, basically, it fills in all the micropores that you can't see in your clear coat as a permanent bond, but it's hard. So dust, you know, tar, bugs, doesn't matter, even paint. You know, if you dumped a can of paint on a ceramic coated vehicle, it would run off and beat off like, you know, water off of, you know, a wax candle or something. Or a leaf. Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an incredible compound and it does the same thing in plants. It makes them physically impervious. impervious. Yeah. The other thing too, talking about that, the physical effect that it has when the plant has adequate amounts is talking to a colleague of mine who was seeing high rates of available silica applications and foliar applications on berries combined with, you know, a biological and they're seeing infection sites from things like botrytis stop and actually heal over. And I've noticed that before in crops that have abundant amounts of silica along with calcium where they get, you know, say a, a rub or a, a split, say in a, you know, a cherry or, you know, a peck from a bird or something like that. It doesn't rot if it has adequate levels of silica as well as calcium. And it will sometimes literally heal over and you'll see a scar, which is amazing. That's not very common in, in soft fruits. So it's incredible. So, you know, we talk about biotic and abiotic stressors, you know, some good examples of biotic stressors. And I think everyone with any crop can relate to aphid pressure. I mean, ugh, what, <laughs> what crop or plant, even houseplant, whatever, everyone has had a run in with aphids. 
And it just, as, as it turns out, our special guest, Craig here has, you know, a few run-ins with these aphids. You want to talk a little bit about that? And Sure. So we grow, you know, wheat susceptible to aphids, soybeans, and then bananas. And I'm going to touch on bananas, it's a bit of a unique crop, but, you know, we historically were using things like MOP and, you know, CAN and, and different products in production. And you see a significant, you know, salt, chlorine, these factors, and then you have aphids show up in the plant. And yeah, you, you just see these, these factors and you can add obviously silica, which helps to you know, remediate some of those issues. And we see it obviously with, with different kinds of pesticides to deal with the aphids are then affecting the plant's synthesis and tracking aphids all over again. So it's an interesting, interesting thing. Were you saying something earlier in one of the, I think that Springer book on silica talking about that other than the immune response that the silica has to prevent some of these insects, it actually does something to the mm. stylus of some of these sucking insects? Yeah. So, so in our case, we have a disease called bunchy top virus. It's a viral borne disease. The vector is believed to be an aphid and it takes about four to 16 hours to infect the plant with the virus. And in the documents that we have on silica, it says that while it doesn't stop the stylus of the, of the aphid from going into the plant, there's a chemical response due to the silica that causes them to remove early. And in many cases, that's going to significantly reduce the infection rate of that virus. And in our case, you know, less than 10 years ago, we were almost out of business because of that virus. And so mm-hmm. the ability to use silica to do that without compromising our, you know, plant health using some of the other solutions is huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's big. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So why don't we talk a little bit about silica and its synergy with other elements? Trent, you were talking to me earlier about numerous elements, but mm-hmm. you know, one that is just massive being phosphorus. I mean, we see it all the time in crops. Not only is the application of phosphorus frustrating because it tends to tie up in soils very quickly and um, also often tying up calcium, which is huge. And we'll have an episode on that that well, or several likely. But can you tell us a little bit about its role or what you've seen in regards to making other elements more available? Sure. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of published information if you dig on silica and its interactions, one of them I just pulled up here, it gives a list and there's, you know, more than this that we don't even realize yet, but it has, there's evidence that silica mediate acquisition and uptake and nutritional translocation of nutrients as interactions with nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, sulfur, iron, zinc, manganese, copper, boron, chlorine, nickel. And then from a remediation standpoint, interactions with aluminum, sodium, and selenium. So it pretty much interacts with most nutrients that we need and that we're aware of at the moment. So, I mean, that could lead us into a whole nother conversation about how does silica do that? Mm. But when it comes to interaction with some of these nutrients, it's not, at least to me, it's not super clear exactly how it does that. We just know that it does. Mm -hmm. We see when we have increased levels of silica, we see increased calcium absorption when we have adequate silica levels. When lacking silica, we struggle with phosphate availability. We increase our silica content and then we get more available phosphorus into crops or even just available 
nutrients in the soil solution. We've seen that before years ago when we uh, were struggling with phosphorus availability, not phosphorus in the soil, but phosphorus, available phosphorus in the soil. And we applied a rock mineral, sedimentary rock mineral product to the soil, like 500 pounds of the acre. And we saw the next season, our available phosphate double. And we thought maybe it was an anomaly, but it was across, you know, 10 different blocks. This was in orchard specifically. And then over the next, what's been seven, eight years since that time, and it's maintained at those levels. And we had previous records of available phosphorus levels at half of what it is, you know, has been the last several years for multiple years prior to that application. And so we think it had something to do with the silica potentially activating, say an organism that released phosphate or something. But yeah, it's extremely interesting in how it interacts with so many other things, especially when it comes to some of these problem things like aluminum, sodium, et cetera. It seems like with the elements that are, say, out of balance or antagonistic at excess levels, it seems to buffer that kind of like carbon does. Mm. But the, you know, certain elements like phosphate, like calcium, it increases, upregulates the availability of those, of those minerals, which is so key because so many times in crops for crop quality, we know we want firm fruit or strong cell walls, you know, a stock of say corn or grain that doesn't just, you know, lodge or fall over or break that can handle weather and environmental stress and, you know, grow in general. It's like, well, how do we do that? And, you know, we, we know calcium is a huge part of that, but a lot of times it's like, well, we have tons of calcium. We don't need more calcium. You know, we, we should have a tons. Problem is it's not available. And part of that's due to lack of carbon, lack of actual microbiology in the soil, making it available. But a lot of it has to do with silica as well. So when you combine those two, it's it's phenomenal what you can achieve when it comes to rigidity and crop or produce quality. Well, and something interesting about, you know, I, I can't help myself every time we talk about <laughs> things, I always go into the electrical aspect because, you know, as humans, we're electrical organisms. And the more I learn about plants, the more I realize they're electrical organisms and we live in an electrical universe. And so, you know, I just can't help but think about silicon and its role, you know, in electrical engineering as a semiconductor. I mean, where would we, we wouldn't be doing this, right, without silicon because semiconductors, computers, the internet, like just think. All your microchips are quartz-based. Right, exactly. And what else do we know about this? the soil? We know that the Basically, these ecosystems are based on networks, underground networks, predominantly, you know, facilitated by fungi and mycelium and things like that. Networks, I mean, so many similarities. And so, you know, we look at plants and some of those elements you rattled off, you know, some of them like calcium have a capacitant effect electrically in the plant. But a lot of these others, you know, they're electrical, they're electrolytes, right? They're, They're metabolites that are high conductors of electricity. You know, we see them in batteries, for instance, and we need those things, but they're, they're always mitigated, you know, or, or translated through semiconductors and insulators. And so, you know, so often I feel like in, in agriculture, what we're throwing at our plants are, are metal ions and things that are extremely energetic, which is good. We need energy to get things done, but not if it isn't contained. I mean, what do we call energy uncontained explosions, right? <laughs> And what we see in fields, a lot of times we could describe as explosions and we don't want explosions. Those generally cost us money. But could you talk a little bit too, Trent, about specifically about aluminum? Because, you know, whether that's plants 
animals or humans, you know, aluminum it serves a huge role. I mean, it's it's the number one element in the earth crust, but mm-hmm. what do we find when it's an AL3 plus? Well, it and, seems like that aluminum by itself is extremely antagonistic. And part of that is it's, I think by itself, it's considered amphoteric, which is basically it's available at, you know, an acid or a base, positive or negative. It can go into places and do things that it shouldn't do. And it's, it can bind to things. It's a conductor. It's extremely conductive, kind of like copper. But, but because of that, it binds to things. So then it causes all, wreaks all kinds of havoc if it's binding to things that are necessary. Like if you get free aluminum in your brain, there's a lot of evidence that shows, you know, people have done autopsies on people that have Alzheimer's and dementia, and they have sometimes, you know, 40 times the amount of aluminum in their brain tissue than healthy people that don't have those, you know, neurodegenerative diseases. There's even images of brain cells growing and when it comes in contact with aluminum, it literally just stops and like wigs out. It can't, it's toxic. And so in nature, in soil, typically aluminum is bound to silica, aluminosilicates. Silica is the number one antidote to excess aluminum. But when we are using tons of acid-based materials, we have, you know, basically through our agricultural practices and chemicals and all these different things, I shouldn't use that term chemical, but specific types of chemistries that are toxic to microbiology, we reduce our amount of carbon that also helps bind some of these elements like aluminum. We reduce the ability of the biology that release and actually make silica available. And then we, you know, change the pH. We stress things. We lower the pH in microclimates, say around root rhizospheres or in the soil surface because of acid-based fertilizers that we're using, et cetera, et cetera. And what happens? Aluminum becomes available. Because it's available at lower pHs, it's available in the absence of silica, in the absence of carbon, et cetera, et cetera. And so using silica and understanding this is huge to remediating a lot of these issues because elevated levels of aluminum in plants, we see it using plant sap analysis. It's always correlated with some type of issue, whether it be insects, but primarily disease. When there's plant stress, particularly root stress, we see all of a sudden aluminum come up into the plant out of nowhere. And there's a whole host of reasons of why that could happen. But aluminum is a major problem that a lot of people aren't aware of at the moment in animals and humans. And we're mostly focused on it in crops and silica is the antidote to that. That's good. So you've talked a lot about why silica, why we use it. That brings us to, we use a lot of silica here at Soilcraft. Give us some examples. What have you seen from it out in the field results from using it? So probably the number one thing that we see from silica is reduction in fungal diseases. That's probably hands down the mm-hmm. simplest, easiest thing. And it, all you have to do is do is quick, you know, search online. You can find archives literally like right here on Frontiers. There's 900 articles on silica. You know, there's so much information on how it impacts the permeability and the mobilization of pathogens. And whether that be physical or as we talked about earlier, actual chemical responses that the plant produces to deal with those. So we see phenomenal results from using silica on a regular basis. The other thing is I think it's structural. Silica is structural. And so 
It's not something you use one time and then ta-da, solve your problem. As every single cell grows and produces, it takes silica, calcium, and all those cell walls. And so you need it at, you know, luxurious levels, amounts constantly as that plant grows and expands. And so we apply it immediately early in the season, whether that be foliar sprays and soil applications and furrow, et cetera. And then we continue to do that over and over and over. I probably should back up a little bit. The reason I think that this is showing up as such an issue, not having silica or having these results, these issues, you know, fungal issues, crops that have low quality that break down in storage after they're harvested, et cetera, et cetera, because of a lack of available silica is primarily because we have, through our management practices, have reduced the soil biology that are responsible for making silica available. Silica is everywhere. It's sand. It's, it's everywhere. It's in everything, you know, it's in the dirt, but it's not available. So until we get to that point, obviously we focus a lot on soil biology, but we still see an added benefit to applying available forms of silica throughout the season, the reduction in powdery mildew, reduction in all your different types of fungal issues. Yeah, there's there's a whole host of different things that that we see from using it. So um, some of the experiences we've had using silica, um, you know, I, I'm a curious person and I'm also a, a, a bit of a suspicious person. And, you know, you're, you're on the farm and the, the product sales guys show up. And they're always coming with stuff and I have this problem because I'm curious, but I'm also wondering, you know, are they bringing me the, the product for which there is no problem? And so when I got the, the information on silica for the first time, a calcium silicate product, I was torn because it, it was like, you know, I want to spend the money. Do I really need this? Like, who's heard of this? Like, we, we have all these other things we, we put onto plants. Do we really need to add something else that none of us have heard of? And I went ahead and let curiosity prevail over suspicion and I went and tried it and it was fascinating. So, you know, a lot of products you try, you think, well, I think I see a response. And in the case of, of silica, I've never used it and not been actually shocked at how much response. So one of the products that we used on it was a, you know, a potassium silicate product sprayed on wheat this year. And I can go out and I can noticeably see improved structure, not a little bit, significantly. And, you know, last year we had massive lodging because we're, you know, under center pivot, we're pushing water, pushing nutrients pretty heavy. And so that was really remarkable. We also seen it in some of our fruit crops in responses, you know, the issues of, of transport damages. I mean, to the point where we've had people come and say, hey, you know, what's happened in this crop? Well, I didn't tell I've applied silica to and they've noticed something changed, the color changed, the, you know, the damages changed, the, the structure. And I didn't tell them, oh, I'm doing this. Let's see what happens. They go out and they're like, what, what happened? Mm. And so it's been very interesting for me to see just how much that response is. And obviously I'm in a subtropical climate, which is even more dramatic, but, you know, water stress, cold stress, heat stress. I mean, just go down the list of issues that I deal with that are addressed by the issue. I mean, we, we deal with issues like bacterial leaf streak in, in wheat, 50% less lesion space because you put on the silica. You do look at things like septoria, which we deal with, you know, significant improvements in, in, in that powdery mildew. Just today, I'm looking at one of the, the WhatsApp groups that I'm on and they're talking, oh, you've got powdery mildew infections. Silica significantly reduces that in mm -hmm. wheat. And so it's just like, it's really for me been amazing to see that 
And to jump to the bottom line, so like Denver was mentioning the the 20 times or 21 times more efficient energy use in the building of the structure of the plant. You know, for me, I'm looking at, you know, where does that go to the bottom line? That's interesting, but how does that affect my pocketbook? Well, if I'm saving energy, I'm either saving fertilizer, I'm getting more crop, which is if I can save energy, if I can be more efficient in in synthesis, my favorite protein synthesis, less water Mm -hmm. and maintaining yield. It's energy being pumped, energy being applied, energy being bought, or energy that's coming back in the form of dollars to my pocket. So, like, that's motivating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. It's interesting, too, because, um, you know, we keep hitting on that. And, and not to say we have all the answers, <laughs> that's for sure. Maybe maybe a majority of the questions. But, you know, again, why, you know, our soils are high in this. So, why why are we seeing such a benefit to the application, you know? But, you know, what's interesting is one of the things we find is pH, you know, high pHs can definitely have, play a big role in availability. But also, so you mentioned you're in tropical soil, tropical soils, weathered soils tend to be particularly high in concentrations, you know, and wherever there's large amounts of sesquioxides, which is a big fancy word for saying it's a, like aluminum oxide is a good example. Something with, with three oxygens attached to it. But something we're finding even in soils that are not considered weathered because of our, our agricultural practices are high, whether that's where I live in the North Palouse currently, and we see historically high rates of anhydrous ammonia being used, which are knocking calcium off our colloid and things like that. We're ending up with oxides. And and we learned that most of our practices currently in agriculture, most of our inputs are oxidative in nature rather than reducing. And so we're finding ourselves in a state where we we're seeing silica. We'll, we'll talk on another on manganese, these elements that are not available because of the conditions we've created. So how can we push back on those? Well, one of which is applying silica, you know, whether that's through calcium silicate in soil, or we've seen huge progress foliarly with high quality silicates, whether that's potassium silicate or maybe monosilicic acid or orthosilicic acid. And I like uh, just to repeat, Trent, your point I've seen in the field, uh, start early and often would be what I would say, because the earlier I start, the more I see my levels appreciate throughout the season. If I wait and uh, I'm not sure, let's see what our saps say. And we have the the benefit of, of having saps to say, well, do we really need it? But I would encourage to start immediately with it. And then maybe you can curtail some of the rates on later applications. But as I've started with it straight out the gate, my crops maintain levels much better throughout the season, which is going to basically promote that plant's ability to be adaptable and resilient. Silica, also one of the things that I've noticed on plant sap analysis is there is usually, not always, usually there's a direct correlation to plant stress, particularly when we see aluminum levels go up. Almost every time that I see something happen and aluminum go up, I see silica go up as well, which is in my mind, the plant's like trying to, you know, keep from this toxic thing by itself causing problems and so it's trying to upregulate and bring things in to deal with that stress and one of the main things that i i feel like i need to mention is we have noticed multiple times multiple years in completely different crops from hot plants to hazelnuts when growers apply different types of pesticides particularly things like imidacloprid for aphids we see aluminum skyrocket. I'm talking in the neighborhood of, you know, 20 to 
30 times. Go from two, three parts per million to <laughs> 80 parts per million. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, where did that come from? Well, the only thing that was done in different fields, different times, and different crops was those pesticide applications for, you know, trying to deal with, in this instance, particularly aphids. And so we don't know what those chemicals are doing, but they're doing something in the root zone that is toxic to the plant that's either infecting that rhizosphere around the root and stressing it to where it's allowing aluminum in or it's changing the pH. Something is happening. I don't know that there's particularly aluminum in those products per se. There are different types of fungicides and herbicides that are loaded with aluminum which is terrible because nobody talks about that. They're not on the labels. There's a few products that actually are on the label. They're literally using aluminum as the fungicide. Of course, it's going to kill everything, but it's going to mess up your plant and your biology and everything else. And you don't want to eat that either. But that's something that's extremely important to note that they definitely correlate aluminum and silica. And so when we see that happen, when you were talking about earlier and you said you see silica continue to from early season, you know, creep up in the plant. We'll see that. But if there's a major stress event and somehow aluminum becomes available to the plant, we'll see silica, you know, because it's trying to deal with that stress. And so then we have to put on a lot more silica and carbon, et cetera, to help remediate, you know, that, that issue. And I do have, I found, um, there's actually quite a bit of information one of them's here from Frontiers Journal talking about the strains. So Bacillus, Pseudomonas, you know, Rhizobia, Percordia, Enterobacter. These are all, you know, strains of bacteria that they know make silica available. And so, yeah, ultimately it comes back to soil health, getting what we need for plant yeah. resiliency. Another reason, you know, we again say, oh, why, why do we need to add this? You know, Craig came across an interesting tidbit on removal rate. So, you know, we think, okay, well, if, if it is, you know, is it straddling the line between micro macro? It's so adaptable. So, you know, involved in so many aspects, you know, the crops are taking some of that away, especially in some crops where we're not only hauling away or, or systems, you know, like here in the Columbia Basin where we'll harvest grain, but then we'll go ahead and bale off the residue and haul that off as well. What was the removal rate? Did you remember? What you? Yeah, it's between three and five hundred pounds an acre in rice and in um, sugarcane, and certainly in wheat is is similar to rice in its in its demands, a little bit lower. But yeah, massive massive reductions. Wow, that's that's really significant. You can see how if perhaps we're not mining, if you will, the silica available in the Earth's crust, but you could certainly see how we could be making a big impact on what's available. And if we're not, if we don't have the organisms there, we're not creating that right environment. So, and one of those chief, chief most being cover, residue cover, and you haul off the residue, which has the silica and is the environment for the microbes to inhabit to make the silica available. <laughs> we're cutting off both our legs. Well, and you see that all the time. You see, you know, in, in people talking about wheat production and do I take the straw or leave the straw? Oh, we're going to take away the potassium. You're taking away the potassium silicate, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you're double doubling it. And and on that note, the biology side. So you know, biology makes things available. 
Well, a lot of us know that we have degraded biological situations. You go out to the other day, I was out and, and Southern Africa, where I'm from, it's cold. And, you know, I went out and stuck my hand in a, in a compost manure pile. And, you know, on the outside, it's cold. and the inside, it's hot. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing in our fields. When you have active biology, you have a higher soil temperature. Well, if we've compromised that in the process, we see a three-degree damage window extension mm. by having silica on the leaf through potassium silicate. And so you imagine, I mean, how many of the major cold damage events mm-hmm. are just degrees, a couple, two, three yeah. degrees, and it's the difference between t- absolute disaster and it's okay. Yeah. That window of three degrees is huge mm-hmm. for that. And when we see it before you hit damage by having that in the plant leaf. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something else I forgot about earlier that I need to mention is there's now research being done, you know, specifically by companies who manufacture different types of silica products, trialing them against calcium carbonate based materials as sunburn protectants in fruit, particularly in apples and pears. And they're finding that they are having the same and in several instances, better or less sunburn, better control of sunburn in these fruit crops by using available silica. And so we're not talking and they're comparing them in field trials against a literal physical coating from calcium carbonate based materials where they spray the trees and the fruit white to help reflect the sun so it reflects heat so that piece of fruit doesn't get too hot and then have that internal you know issue browning coloration breakdown etc and they're applying available silica we're talking you know in the neighborhood of eight to maybe 32 ounces per acre and it's completely clear there's nothing you can see physically on the crop and yet they're getting less sunburn which is Phenomenal because that's meaning that silica has this ability to basically diffuse solar radiation and the plant's able to basically handle higher temperatures and not have the effects that it has being marked or burnt, et cetera, which is, it's awesome. It's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, and that kind of dovetails just to talk a little bit more on phytoalexins, which Again, that low molecular weight compound uh, that the plant produces is a result of stress, whether it's biotic or abiotic. So abiotic stress, sun, right? It's getting sun, sun burn. The plant is able to produce phytoalexins, which is its ability to do a number of things, including it impacts chemical structures, biosynthesis, regulatory mechanisms, biological activities, metabolism, and molecular engineering. And so that's you know, we're hitting on that, right? So sunburn, mole- there's molecular engineering going on. It's releasing phytoalexins, which, which allow a signal, if you will, the plant's ability to then go reorganize things in such a manner physically that, that they're able to have a barrier that we can't see, but, but is in place. So basically, you're letting it get a suntan instead of a sunburn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you're 100% right. I mean, that's what we're looking for. And we always do this at Soilcraft. We're always tying in, you know, what we eat to we are what we eat. So to who we are. And so, you know, I can't help but sit here and wonder, okay, well, if it's, if this is helping the plant mm-hmm. not be susceptible to the damaging rays of the sun, yep. then if I eat it, is that going to happen as well. You know, we see that all the time. We, we see that in minerals now. And we've been scouring for r- results for silica in human 
to find out whether that mitigates UV radiation or, you know, a topic we've been discussing right here is EMF, you know, and radio waves, things like that, because, you know, look, we're bombarded. We live, I like some people say, we kind of live in a toxic soup, you know, <laughs> whether it's the pesticides around us or the, the radio waves being bombarded uh, or being bombarded with, we need to be resilient ourselves, right? And so how do we increase resilience? And and we know that we, we, we increase resilience by what we eat. So these phytoalexins produce things that we are familiar with, like resveratrol. You know, we I think most of us have heard of resveratrol, uh, whether we know it's a phytoalexin or not. And so resveratrol in humans, right, will help to prevent uh, cardio. It, it helps with cardioprotective, anti-tumor, neuroprotective, antioxidant, and aging, antifungal, antibacterial. That's just resveratrol, and that's only one phytoalexin produced by some plants. And we know quite a bit about resveratrol because it's one of the longest studied uh, phytoalexins. It's in a lot of red fruits. Red fruits. Raspberries. Wine. It's been known to be in so grapes. Yes, exactly. Those cherries that we were eating, those super amazing Bing cherries at your place we were eating last night, probably high in Mm -hmm. resveratrol. And so, again, what what does that mean for us? Well, that means that's going to be creating resilient uh, humans. And and part of that is, for instance, resveratrol also has been shown to be active against bacteria like chlamydia, heliobacter, staphylococcus, enterococcus, pseudomonas, and uh, neisseria, which, you know, these are some heavy hitters. And it's just amazing to me. The more the more I study creation, the more I realize that the, the macro and the micro are one. There's more similarities than dissimilarities. I like what some of the leading leading people in our field have discussed, including, you know, John Kempf mentioned, I like the way he describes, you know, the plants, the, the, basically what we're starting to learn is that the plants have a neurosystem that is more similar to our brain than we, we previously realized. And the same is true of the immune systems. And so, you know, I, I really believe what this is allowing us to do and what we're seeing is it allows plasticity or flexibility within the plants, within the organisms to then let the the design express itself. It produces flexibility. So we we make sure we're supplying this element and whether it's transmutating or or synergistic or or whatever it may be, what it is affording is the the robust aspect of the plant to be able to not only just fight off one stressor, but all stressors, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's not very often we can do that. And we're always at trying to do, you know, how can we get at the root? How can we push one button and have 10 outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that's what that's what I've seen in the field. I think that's everybody here at Soilcraft that has been using silica is saying the same thing. Like, you know, the one thing we can say is when we use it, our plants are, are look better. They're more lustrous. They're, they're, they're more resilient. It just comes back to what can you afford? Yeah. Never, I've never seen a toxicity of silica. <laughs> that's <laughs> Available right. silica. The more yeah. we use, the better results we get. Sometimes when we're desperate, we double, triple the rate and whoa, look what <laughs> happened. All that problem went away. Something else I really wanted to come back to, forgot when uh, Craig mentioned removal rates. If you look in um, Nutrition and Plant Disease book, this full of um, articles and research papers, publications on how minerals interact with plant disease in there, in the beginning, it talks about the levels of nutrients deemed adequate for plant growth. And in there, you know, obviously hydrogen, oxygen, you know, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen are like the highest amounts that plants need for adequate growth. And then you get to nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, et cetera. And then sulfur, guess what's after that? 
Silica. Yeah. Silica is needed at the same amount in plants as sulfur, right next to phosphorus. And yet people, no one's paying attention to this. And so absolutely when it comes to removal rates, plants need, they need tons. We talked a little bit about it in human health too, but we forgot to mention, you know, we you know, human health, we are what we eat, but we also, many of us eat animals and these animals, not only are, are we looking to them to impart nutrition to us, but also as we're stewarding them, right? Animal husbandry, trying to raise the most resilient, healthy animals we can. We're looking constantly to what goes in, comes out and nutrition. And, you know, there's particularly a disease that that's common in Zambia that, uh, you want to talk a little bit about that, Craig? Yeah. So foot and mouth disease, uh, you know, an issue that, that cattle. affects the cattle, um, major issue. I mean, it, it'll stop export to other countries, all kinds of economic issues. But interesting thing in the soil grass and cancer that, that Andre Vosoyan has, um, it mentions studies where they've found that the cases of FMD are almost non-existent in places that have granite-rich soils. So where we're at, we're on um, calcium-rich soils. You know, we've got lots of um, bicarbonate base in the, in the under rock. And we have tons of the cases of that in the area. And it turns out that it's the silica, it appears, in the granite-based soils that comes up in the grasses that's eaten by the cattle. And now this virus, this FMD virus, isn't found to be expressed in very many cases at all. And so it makes you think not only about the animal health of the silica, but it also makes you wonder, hey, it's affecting viruses in animals. What about viruses in us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and interestingly too, it makes you wonder as well, FMD. Okay, so we talk about this all the time. Okay, is the issue that, that the animal, the host has a disease or do they have a disease because of a deficiency? Exactly. And we know, I mean, silica in, in humans and animals is responsible for hair, nails, well, hooves, mm-hmm. right? Our nails and, and as well as the epithelial lining in our, in our mouths and in our gut lining and these things. And so, yeah, we, we have to stop and say, okay, again, why are things susceptible in some regions and not others? And often it's because of deficiencies really creating an opportunity for disease. Mm-hmm. Back to nutrition all over again. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned something earlier, Denver, that this will open up a whole can of worms, but we can leave this here at the end where people can... Go off and dig into it. But you mentioned transmutation and there is evidence that silica can be basically, you know, transmutated under a extremely energy intense environment, particularly nuclear, you know, I think it's fusion or fission, fusion and nuclear fusion can transmutate silicon carbide into other things other elements, which is like mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, it can change. So that's, in, okay, whoop de doo that's cool, but that's not natural. That doesn't happen in nature. Well, does it? Or does, or does it? <laughs> <laughs> and so then you, you know, you can dig a little further and you can read, this is new information in the last few years. They're showing that bacteria can transfer electrons across membranes to the cell exterior. Enzymes required for electron transport chain of bacteria are membrane bound in eukaryotic cells and bacteria. These molecules are present in the plasma. Membrane bacteria have no mitochondria. The hydrogen ion gradient, which drives ATP synthesis, is thus generated across the plasma membrane. So if bacteria have the ability to move electrons, protons, neutrons, things that typically only happen under a 
extremely energy intense nuclear environment, can they take things like silica and turn them into other elements in which the plant needs or human needs? Where does that electron go once it's moved? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so well, that's extremely interesting. Just yeah. for that yeah. topic. Very controversial, <laughs> but exciting information to ponder. Yeah, yeah, but most advances in science start with controversy. I mean, real science starts with questions. And it's yeah. a question. Like, with it, there's no question in natural environments out in the world with all the variables possible that we deal with. But look, guys, that's where we live. We don't live in labs. This is where we live. We live where nothing's, we never see the same thing twice. And there are an unquantifiable amount of variables. And so we know other things can happen. The cool, the coolest aspect, I think, is that really our best work is in facilitating the natural realm, the design to function on its own. And we, we talk about that often. I mean, we, we, we were always looking for ways that we can come in and do something precise. But really, if we honor the system and the way it's designed and, and we honor the basic things, you know, covering the soil right? Animals, the the, the five regenerative principles or principles of regenerative agriculture. When we, when we make sure we have those honored, look at what happens. Impossible things happen. Emergent properties come forth and we're able to observe it. We can't explain it. And unfortunately we we really have a bad habit as men of one of not accepting it until we can explain it. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're getting closer and that's cool. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because there's a crumb trail there that yeah. I mean, we can't deny that it's possible. The point is, is bacteria biology in many ways we're finding is trumping chemistry. And we're, I mean, the world of biology is just now, you know, yeah. uncovering some of these things that microorganisms have the ability to do things we did not think were possible. So it's really exciting. Yeah, good. So guys, you've referenced several books throughout this episode, and um, we've got a whole bunch out here on the table in front of us. So give some uh, recommendations. What are good if people want to learn more about silica in this topic? Yeah, where should they go? There's a handful of them. Uh, I've got one here that has some information on silica called Mineral Nutrition Plant Disease by Lawrence Statenoff, Wade Elmer, and Don Huber. Yeah, another one, Silicon and Plant Diseases by Rodriguez and Dantonoff. Big one, Marshner's Mineral Nutrition of Higher Plants, huge section on silica, among other things. I guess you mentioned, Craig. Yeah, the other one that we got the, uh, the animal health factor out of was the Soil, Grass, and Cancer by Andre Vasoyan. And then talking about aluminum, there's a book that was just published in 2020 by Dr. Christopher Slexi on aluminum. It's called Imagine You're an Aluminum Atom, Discussions with Mr. Aluminum, Studied Aluminum Interactions and biological systems for i think over 20 years and um in there yeah it's that's that's the number one antidote drink water that's high in available silica and we'll, we'll do our best here to compile links to research articles that we've referenced for show notes yeah absolutely great well it's a big topic i think there's a lot more that we did not cover as um as you see silica's involved in almost every part of what we do here so thanks for listening and we'll end here thank you for listening it's been another successful podcast if you have any questions or a topic that you'd like to hear us address please email us at podcast at soilcraft.com until next time thanks again for listening